We are going to conclude uh, our final portion of the book of Ruth. And uh, you can follow along with us if you brought a Bible. Feel free to open up to Ruth or uh, you can follow, follow along with us in the Bible app if that's uh, easier for you uh, to do that. So we've been going through Ruth. This will be our fourth week. And um, up to this point, we have covered a lot of the basics uh, of the story. Ruth is a masterful uh, story. And uh, so far, we've covered the setting and the characters. We've talked about the plot of the story. Um, we've certainly focused in on the conflict in the story. And today, we finally get to the resolution. Now, let me catch you up quickly. If, uh, if you haven't been here... Um, for several of the weeks in this story, maybe you're unfamiliar with the story of Ruth. Um, the story begins with a woman named Naomi and her husband and her sons who leave their homeland because of a famine. In this new land, her husbands marry um, some women. And then tragically, Naomi's husband dies. And then both of her sons die. And she's left with her two daughter-in-laws. One of them goes back home uh, to her family, and one of them chooses to stay with Naomi, and her name is Ruth. And after the famine had let up, Naomi and Ruth go back to Naomi's homeland um, to try to make a living there. And in the midst of all of their heartache, um, of all of the grief they're enduring, because of the time and the culture, um, these widows were not able to provide for themselves. Now, we can provide whatever kind of commentary and critique on the cultural and societal um, standards of that day, but that's the way it was 3,000 years ago when this story is taking place. These widows could not just go out and get a job. Um, they were dependent upon men in their family to help provide for them. Normally that would be a husband, but Naomi's husband has died. So then that would fall to the responsibility of her sons, but they also died. And so we're in this tragic situation where these women who are already um, overwhelmed by grief and sadness at the loss of, of their husbands um, are now trying to figure out how to survive. And on to the scene walks a man named Boaz. And Boaz, we learn, is a good man. He's a worthy, respectable, honorable man. Doesn't help that he's got some money, and he's also single. And so we have the perfect situation for a great, great story, right? You've probably watched some movies along this line this month, uh, with it being February. And so we see this relationship and even a little bit of love starting to form between Ruth and Boaz. So there's a few things that we need to talk about that are going to take place specifically in chapter 4 in this story. And we've already seen hints at it, and we've even mentioned a few pieces about it. But in ancient Israel, there are certain legal institutions for what we call physical redemption. And these are legal institutions um, from their culture and society uh, that just helped to ensure that when tragedy struck, there were ways to compensate or take care of it. And in ancient Israel, they had something called a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer had the opportunity to step in and save the day when things go tragically wrong. 
And one of the ways that they have to step in and save the day is they can be a property redeemer. So here's, imagine with me what may happen. Um, if you remember the history of Israel, they were at one time slaves in Egypt. God set them free through some amazing, miraculous events. He leads them through the wilderness and brings them to what is often called in the Bible, the promised land. It was the land that God had promised to these people. This land represented so many things for them. It represent, uh, represented their home. It represented an identity. Uh, it, it helped to form their culture and society. It brought safety because they were together in their own plan, uh, in their own place and could fortify it. This land meant so much. Well, if you can imagine that there's an Israelite family who has no one to inherit the property, what happens when that husband and wife die if they have no heirs? Well, that property now becomes available and sometimes available for sale. And sometimes, because you can imagine what it was like 3,000 years ago, available to be conquered and taken. So because they valued the land so much, they wanted to make sure that the land stayed within their own people group. So if there was someone with no heirs to take land, then a kinsman redeemer, the closest male relative, could purchase the property so that it would stay within the Israelite people. So this ensured that no one outside of their group, no foreigner, could come in and take the land that God had given them. So you have a property redeemer. And it was often um, the closest male relative had the first right of refusal. That's how we word it today for the property. They could purchase the property to keep it in the name of Israel. But you also have, as another legal institution in ancient Israel, a marriage redeemer. So if a widow um, has no children, then there's another institution set up to ensure that she is cared for and that her, her uh, descendants can have something to inherit. So this is, this is how it would go often. Imagine a woman is married to a man and they don't have any children and her husband dies. What would often happen is that man's brother would come and marry his brother's widow and all of the children that were produced from that marriage would be classified as the deceased man's kids. Even though he was not technically, physically their father, legally he would be considered the, the father of those kids so that those kids could inherit his property and his name and his uh, influence and his property could continue. And so they had these two legal institutions um, set up. Now, it's unusual to us. Because in the West, we operate life differently. For example, when it comes to love and marriage, okay? Here's how we often in the West approach it, okay? We choose to marry the person we love. That's how we do it in the West, right? We choose to marry the person we love. But that's not true in every part of the world, and it certainly hasn't been true for the majority of human history. For the majority of human history, it went like this. We choose to love the one we marry. You didn't always have the choice of who to marry. Oftentimes that was chosen for you. The choice you were given was the choice to love. Now that's different for us 
But you got to remember, that's the setting we're in here. Also, because in the West, we are a very individualistic culture, we do what is best for us. That's how we often make decisions. What's best for me? What fits my desires and my wants and even my needs? What's best for me? But that's not true in all parts of the world, even today. In many parts of the world, actually, if you just, from a population standpoint, just pure numbers, the majority of the world does not operate in an individualistic culture. They operate in a familiar culture or a familial culture that's designed around honor shame, meaning you don't do what's best for you, you do what's best for your family. That's how many people in the world operate today and have for the majority of human history. Um, I have done some teaching and some work in East and Southeast Asia. I have friends who are missionaries there. And one of the greatest obstacles to getting people to a place of coming to faith in Jesus in those cultures is not, do they believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do they believe that he died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead? The greatest barrier is, what will my family think? And that's different for us, but that's the culture that we see here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the story, and we're going to get to see today some resolution. And we have called this series, Ruth, a story of Redemption, And today we're going to get to see that redemption take place. And so now we're going to close out our story. Ruth chapter 4. We'll start in verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, so he is Boaz. Okay, this is the man that Ruth and Boaz, they're starting to have eyes for one another. They're starting to desire one another and Boaz just happens to be a relative, a potential relative, who could redeem Ruth and Naomi. There's a problem, though, because Boaz isn't the closest male relative. And so here in verse four, or verse 3 of chapter 4, we see Boaz talking to the closest male relative. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That was Naomi's uh, husband who was passed. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And so they are an official, they're with all the town leaders, and they're trying to resolve the, the whole problem that's going on, that Naomi and Ruth are on their own and in trouble. And he says, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. So Boaz is telling this guy, listen, you're the closest male relative. You are the one who has first rights of refusal. So Naomi is selling the land that belonged to her husband. We wanna make sure it stays within the Israelite people. So if you would like, you can purchase it. And that money will then go to Naomi and it will help support her. So he's like, if you want, purchase it. If not, tell me and then I'll purchase it. And so this redeemer said, I will redeem it. Hey, it sounds like a good deal. Property's on sale. I'll take it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, 
the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz sort of pulls a fast one and says, oh, by the way, it's not just property, but there's a widow involved. Now, as a part of these legal institutions that we talked about earlier, when both are present, you're not allowed to separate the two, and this is in order to protect the widow. You're not allowed to say, hey, I will buy the property, but I don't want the widow, and I don't want to have to produce heirs for someone else. And so just ethically, they would say, We're not gonna, you can't separate those. Because then you would be able to advan- be advantaged by buying this available property, and you would leave the widow out on her own. So you can't just choose one or the other. And so we see in verse 6, the, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So in this classical story, there's this brief moment. Now, if you didn't know the story, you were hearing it or reading it for the first time, where all of a sudden there's this love story that has started to brew. And you see Ruth and Boaz and they have eyes for one another and they desire one another. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, you mean another man could come in and ruin this? But we realize, nope, that's not going to happen. And in verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. (sighs) We can take a sigh of relief. It's a happy ending. It's the hallmark ending. It's the one that was always supposed to happen. The right guy and the right girl, they get married. Like, it's perfect, okay? And then there's, that's not all of verse 13. Here's how it finishes, little PG-13. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Listen, it's my job to teach the Bible, not biology. So parents, you can answer those questions at lunch about what that means. Um, so we see a happy ending. Like everything just feels right. Naomi is cared for. Ruth is now cared for and is married to a man she loves. And it, it all just has this happy ending. Now it really does have a happy ending, but that's not where the story stops. So if we go on to verse 14, here's what happens next. Then the women, this would be the women of the town, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He has he he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This is kind of an interesting point in the story. Because at this point, Ruth and Boaz, they got married. They had kids. They live happily ever after. Shouldn't the story end there? Why this next scene? And why is this next scene focused on Naomi? And look at how the women of the town celebrate with her. They're acting as though Naomi is the one who gave birth. So why this focus on Naomi? Well, for a couple reasons. One, 
is as we mentioned earlier, you have to remember that, that in ancient Israel, it was an honor-shame culture. Okay? That the greatest thing that you desire in life is for honor, for your family name, and what you will do everything to avoid is shame to your family. And from an outside looking in, Naomi just had a lot of shame in her life. She had really nothing. She had no one. She had her daughter-in-law who remained faithful to her. She had nothing. And in an honor-shame culture, that is shame. And so this is a celebration of the fact that honor has been restored to Naomi and to her family. Hey, Beckett, will you make sure that the HDMI is still plugged in? And the other reason is because this story, this story originally began with Naomi. And so now we get to, as we end the story, we get to turn our attention back to the woman we started the story with. We get to celebrate with her that, yes, this is a story of love and redemption for Ruth, but it's also a story of redemption for Naomi. If you remember when we were starting the story in chapter one, remember after her husband and her sons had died and she had nothing? Remember what Naomi said? This is her in chapter one speaking to her daughter-in-laws and, and to the people of the city. And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. That's her birth name and it means pleasant. Call me Mara, which is Hebrew for bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Just her grief, she's expressing exactly what she feels inside. I went away full with a husband and strapping young boys and I'm coming back with nothing. And then we get to turn as we end the story to see Naomi. And what does it say at the end there? She's taking this baby in her arms. Her arms are literally now full. What a joyous way to end the story. But there's one more thing. There's something else going on in this story. And it's something that makes this story relevant for all of us. I mean, we've seen Ruth is a great story. I mean, it is masterfully written and told. It's got plot twists and character development. And there's a few times we, we as the audience are like, oh no, what's going to happen? But there's resolution and we get the happy ending. But this is more than just a story. Now, these are real historical people that really did live. This really did happen. But this is more than just a story. And I want to go back to a portion of scripture that we read earlier. So we read this just a minute ago. But I don't know if you caught a few unusual details as we were reading. So we began. Then the women, women of the town, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And we've already talked about a kinsman redeemer. We've already talked about how that worked in ancient Israel. 
And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you is more than seven sons. Has given birth to him. Now, wait a second. I don't know if you caught this in the first story. Or the first reading of it. I thought Boaz was the redeemer. Wasn't he the one who purchased the property? Wasn't he the one who married Ruth? And as the women in town are celebrating God's grace in Naomi's life, they celebrate this redeemer, that his name will be renowned, that he's going to be a restorer of life. And her daughter-in-law has just given birth to him. What are they trying to say here? We start to see a glimpse of it in the next verse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That would be King David. That would be the greatest king the nation of Israel had ever known at a time when they were the most powerful nation in the world. This would be that young shepherd boy who defeated Goliath. This would be that man who even God would say of him, he was a man after God's own heart. So if we were watching this story of Ruth play out on a stage, at this moment, the entire room would go dark. It would be pitch black in here. So black you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And then all of a sudden, a spotlight would appear on a new character. On a new character that we have not yet seen or been introduced yet to yet. Now, if you're an author, there is nothing more dangerous than to introduce a new character into the story on the last page of the book. Unless... Unless this new character is about to become the lead character of the sequel. And so all of a sudden, we are captured into this great love story of redemption. And at the last moment, we get this twist and turn that maybe, just maybe, from the very beginning, this story was not about Naomi. It wasn't about Boaz. Turns out it wasn't even about Ruth. But that a new redeemer would be coming. And even though if we're experiencing this story for the first time, we might not know it. We might not know where this story is going. We do know it's taken a dramatic shift. That a redeemer is coming. That there's a different kind of redeemer, different than Boaz, one who restores life, one's who, one whose name will be above all other names. As we start to think about the succession of generations, we can turn our attention to 
another genealogy. A genealogy that sounds much like this one in Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament. And Matthew, when he begins to tell his story of Jesus, is going to open up his story like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As we continue to read through these generations, we come to a certain place in the genealogy where we find out that Solomon is the father of Boaz. That name sounds familiar by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and then the genealogy ends like this. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. We got this glimpse in Ruth's story that a Redeemer was coming. One whose name would be above all other names. One who would be, who would, who would produce life and restore life. There's two take-home, two takeaways for us this morning. Let me give you the first one. I want you to think back over the story of Ruth. If you've been here all four weeks, then you have lots of details and all the different plots, twists and turns and the conflict and the resolution and the character development and the setting. And if you haven't been here, then you'll just have to take my summary uh, that I gave us this morning. But was God at work in this story? Was God at work? Most of you are <coughs> nodding your head yes. Many of you, I think internally, are saying, yeah, God, God was involved in this story. So let me ask you this. In the story of Ruth, we've read almost every word of it. Where did the story explicitly give God credit? Can you think of anything? But let me ask you this. At what point in this story does God speak? Now, this may be unusual, but God doesn't speak in this story. As a matter of fact, there's no place in this story where it explicitly says that God took action. Yet on every page, we see God at work. Dustin pointed this out when he was opening up in Ruth chapter 1. But this is a story of ordinary people living out their ordinary faith. We treat Naomi and Boaz and Ruth as heroes, and no doubt there are certainly commendable aspects of their character and generosity and obedience. But if you were to examine the lives and the details of people who lived in ancient Israel, these wouldn't be the only three commendable people you could find. The only three people who who lived out their faith in their daily life. But what we see is that through their ordinary lives and their ordinary faith, God did something through them that would ultimately change the world. 
God does not ask you to change the world through unspeakable, unheard of, and superhuman acts. God asks you to be obedient to his call and be willing to do whatever he asks, even if that's simple, ordinary, and mundane. Maybe your name will never appear in the history books for it. Or maybe your faithfulness will be the first nudge of a snowball that will change the course of human history. Either way, God will be concerned with the future. He asks us to be faithful to the right now. Some of you look at your lives and you feel like your lives are just ordinary, mundane lives. Like, What's special about my life? Why is writing a book about me? It's just an ordinary life. And what we see in the story of Ruth is that God uses ordinary people in an ordinary life who are faithful to him. It's not our job to act superhuman. It's to be faithful today and to trust God to do whatever he wants with our lives. And here's the second takeaway from us for us today. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. He's the redeemer that the story of Ruth points forward to and he is the redeemer for all of us today. Who needs a redeemer? In the story of Ruth, it's someone who's without a home, without a family. It's someone who has nothing to offer to the world. And a redeemer steps in and brings life and wholeness into tragedy into situations of brokenness. Jesus is our Redeemer who steps into our lives when we're lost and broken, when we have nothing to offer this world. We have nothing to offer anyone else, and we certainly have nothing to offer to God. Jesus steps in and is our Redeemer. And as it says here, that we have redemption through his blood. That we're given a new family, adoption through him. It's through his blood that we find a place to belong. It's through his blood that we find our true identity. And it's through his blood that we become an heir of great things, co-heirs with Christ of an eternal, glorious existence. And it's the redemption through his blood that draws all of us
to worship. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this moment and opportunity that you've given us to, to stop and to think and to reflect upon the beauty of your grace and the redemption that you offer through Jesus. Lord, as we celebrate the happy ending for Ruth, we're here to celebrate and to worship the ending of our stories that you've made possible through the cross. We're no longer defined by our sin and our failures. We're defined by what you have done for us. And that because of your redemption, we've now been adopted into your family. We now get to share as heirs of the glorious eternity you have set aside for us. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a moment as, as we enter into a time of reflection and response. This moment is for us to respond to who God is and the truth that he's spoken in our hearts and our minds today. To celebrate the redemption that Jesus purchased with his blood and made available to us. That we are no longer defined by what happens to us in life. But our identities are defined by what Jesus has done for us. We're going to sing a song called how great, how great the love. We're going to sing about the great love that, that God has bestowed on us. The great love that the Father has for us. How deep the love the Father has for us. That when we were hopeless, He brought hope. When we were lost, He found us. When we were broken, he restored us. When we were dead, he brought life to us. We're going to respond by singing. And if you'd like to stand and sing, we invite you to do that. If you'd like to stay seated and pray, we invite you to do that. The table is open in the back for us to celebrate that redemption through the blood of Christ. That his body was broken as the bread in that basket is broken. The cup represents his blood that was poured out for us. His broken body, his shed blood for us. And so during this time of worship, we invite you to join us at the table as we celebrate the redemption that Jesus purchased. Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for our redemption. Be honored by the way we respond to you this morning.